Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandi Miller, and I'm so excited today to be joined again by my friend Andrea Emerson to talk about defensiveness. Now, I need to name that we recorded this just before the attack on the Capitol, which is this really strong embodiment of what happens when evangelical Christian or white Christian defensiveness hits a fever pitch, really. So you can expect to hear an interruption partway through, just with a few thoughts on that, so it might not feel like it's very cohesive. That's because it's not. I also just want to remind you that Lent starts in less than a week, and we're going to be putting out a Lent ebook that's going to launch on Monday. So you can expect that to be coming out with reflections, ways to connect to the earth, acts of solidarity, and other ways to interact with God, with yourself, and with others more deeply. Part of the proceeds from that book are also going to go toward organizations that are fighting anti-Asian violence, because y'all, as that is on the rise, we have to recognize that when one of us is not free, then none of us are free. And as we fight to reclaim our theology, we're also reclaiming our own humanity and our greater sense of other people's humanity. So with that, enjoy this conversation with Andrea Emerson. All right. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for returning to Reclaiming My Theology for another episode. It is a true pleasure to be back with you, Brandy. Well, I so enjoyed our conversation from last time, but for folks who may not have been listening to our Advent series or aren't caught up, because apparently we're doing a lot over here in terms of content creation, I would love for you to either revisit what it means to be you or give a sense of how being you is manifesting today. Yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about um, how to that question, how being me is manifesting today. So two things um, I thought of was just a little more about what it's been, what what it is in my experience to be a white and Korean woman. So my dad is a Korean adoptee and was part of the first wave of international adoptions to the US, sorry, after the Korean War. So I grew up in a family, in terms of extended family, my dad was adopted into a white family where they had four biological kids and adopted five Korean kids. And then those Korean kids, one of my uncles married a Korean woman, uh, my other aunt, uh, one aunt married a black man, one aunt married a white man, and then my dad, who was half Korean, half white, married a white woman. So we have Thanksgiving photos of our family where the the cousins, my generation, are lined up and you see this mixture of full Korean ethnicity, mixed black and Korean, mixed white and Korean, and then mixed more white and Korean, and that's our family. Um, So I think even you know, at this stage of my life, I'm still navigating what it means to be me in the world and in my family. The other thing that's true of my life right now as a partner, um, I'm married to Ben, who I mentioned last time, we're raising three kids together. We sort of unexpectedly find ourselves in this moment in a mixed faith marriage. That was not how we started out, right? We both uh, worked for the same evangelical organization, met in that. And so, um, we are learning how to, I think, love and partner with one another across a deeper difference than we ever thought. Um, And that's been a really good journey. It's been some of the hardest work of both of our lives. Um, And it's, but I can say that it's been, it's been really good. And we are learning things about ourselves that are, I think, bearing good fruit in our family. So that's something I think a lot about these days as well. As I encounter more and more people, I think for a while we thought we were alone because in the spaces where we were, we did feel mm-hmm. alone. And really in the last few months, I'm I'm interacting with more and more people and realizing, oh, that's, we're not an anomaly, actually. There's a lot of, there's a lot of couples in that situation. So that's something I think about a lot these days. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'd love for you on the front end this time to talk a little bit about the work you do and your sense of vocation, because I know that that has been shaped by and impacts how you experience our topic for today. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about that. 
my primary sense of vocation is as a teacher. So I even look back to, I have a little book that my first grade classmates made for me when I was moving from New York to Arizona as a, as a, at the end of first grade. And one of the repeated themes in, in that little book they made where they were writing, you know, the affirmations that first graders write to one another when they're saying goodbye to a friend and a significant number of mine said, thank you for teaching me how to read. And I don't remember doing that, but apparently in first grade, I was helping my fellow first graders learn, learn how to read. Um, and so I look back to that as this moment of, I really think that who we are vocationally shows up in childhood. There are things that we naturally gravitate towards. Shout out Parker Palmer, let your life speak. Um, that's where I learned that concept. Um, and so that continues to, to show up in uh, repeated threads throughout my life. Currently, that manifests as coaching other women to figure out what they want professionally or personally and how to pursue those things, consulting, training, facilitating group processes, speaking and preaching, all of those things have a thread of teaching. And in my parenting, so much of parenting is figuring out how do we yeah. teach, how do we impart um, values and skills and self-awareness emotional intelligence to these small people in our in our home and so that's that's where my teaching shows up as well I think you're totally right that who we are shows up so early because I have similar memories of I'm, I think I'm less of a teacher and more of a person who tries to take and make complex ideas more simple hmm. and I remember that like I was so shy when I was growing up and one of the only ways the teachers could get me to engage was if I was teaching someone else how to do something hmm. And it was usually taking a complex thing and making it more simple. So I, I feel you there. And I wonder for some of our listeners how much that is true and how much our senses of our spirituality have actually blocked out our ability to see who we've always been and who we're becoming. So I don't know, that just comes to mind. It's not related to anything we're saying today, but I'm curious about that. I think that's that's a whole other thing worth exploring. And I think yes, because in there's way in faith spaces that we learn to not listen to those things about ourselves. And so some, I think particularly as folks reach um, their 30s and into middle age, it's looking backwards in order to rediscover things that were always there. Yes, absolutely. Well, today we are revisiting uh, Reclaiming Our Theology from White Supremacy. And this topic today, I think, could be, just as a warning for folks, maybe more triggering than others because it shows up so frequently in our interpersonal conversations around our own deconstruction, reconstruction, social identities, faith identities, and our beliefs. And that is defensiveness. Hmm. Uh, it shows up kind of everywhere and is one of the things that I think we feel more emotionally than we do a lot of the other values and attributes of white supremacy culture that we experience. And so I do want to talk about defensiveness, both generally and theologically, but we'll start with the general. And so, Andrew, could you give us a sense of what is defensiveness? How would you describe that? Yes. And I will say that my my general definition or working definition of defensiveness is actually coming from the work that I have done in therapy around learning to identify our own places of defensiveness. So I will speak for myself, though, how I'm learning about my own defensiveness. And I would say that a way to think about defensiveness is that it's resistance to be being told the truth about yourself or being tr told something true about yourself. In my experience, it often shows up because the truth that is being communicated is not something you're, I'm already aware of or we're already aware of. That is by definition how blind spots work. If you're blind to something, it means you cannot see it on your own and you need somebody else to point that out. But defensiveness is when in order to maintain a sense of self-protection or a sense of control or, wait, that's not true about me. We kind of push back against someone else reflecting back some something about us that they've experienced. 
Yes, that feels so true. <laughs> and I think one of the things that comes to mind as you say that is that defensiveness is generally an emotional response, but that's backed by logical sentiments. Yes. And so in a world and kind of Christian culture, like culturally Christian worldview or epistemology, we often try to demonize our emotions, yet defensiveness is this emotional thing that we back with our other strategies of like intellectualism and kind of post-enlightenment disdain of embodied experiences. And so mm. I think defensiveness comes from this like emotional bodily place, but is then justified and manifests through different types of words. Totally. And when it shows up, whether it's personally or structurally, it's it I think of it as an invitation to explore what's underneath that because there's there's the there's the emotional part that's happening when you're when you're feeling defensive but then there's all these layers underneath that and so if that gets blocked by words or justification or other things it's actually very hard to be curious about what are what are the feelings someone or a group is experiencing underneath that first layer of defensiveness yes and I think in that about the kind of rugged individualism that informs our defensiveness, that we've been taught to see ourselves as the best interpreters of ourselves. And I think mm. that's true in some things in our life. And I think it's definitely not true in other parts of our lives, especially on our flat sides. And so yes. I think that individualism tells us that how I see myself is who I am when the things that we're actually living out that don't align with our ideologies, with our worldviews that we espouse – those are the places I think where I see a lot of defensiveness come out because there's a disconnect between how I've been taught to individually see myself and how that individual person impacts other people and in mm. ways that I think are very ugly mm. or problematic for myself. And so I can tell that what you're saying about, oh, it's actually where we can't see things about ourselves and that those things are playing out in really what I will call obnoxious, but very human ways. Yeah. And the, the, the complication I hear you talking about is that in some of even this journey of reclaiming our theology, there's places where we absolutely need to relearn or learn learn for the first time how to trust ourselves and what our perception of ourselves is. And then other places where we need other, we will continue to need other people to point those out. And in some ways those things have gotten flipped or the things that other people have pointed out about us aren't actually, aren't the bad parts, right? Does that make sense or aren't yeah, the problematic yes. parts? So it's it's a lot to untangle. Yes. And on top of that, some of those identities or things that we feel defensive about get politicized and mm. therefore get ejected even faster than things that might come to us normally. So I see this happening a lot with whiteness, hmm. where people are like, oh, whiteness has become this political thing where all white people are bad or something. Therefore, I don't listen to any critiques or conversations about whiteness at all, mm -hmm. and therefore feel no responsibility to engage with white supremacy, but only feel defensive because of the politics that are entwined, that are intertwined with it. Eek. I would love to talk a little bit, too, about how you identify defensiveness. Mm -hmm. Like, what does it look like? What does it sound like? Because as I have been considering this conversation, one of the things that has been that has come up most for me is that defensiveness can usually be identified when intentions become the center of conversations. Hmm. Um, and, and it's kind of complicated for me because I think that it matters. Like, intentions do matter. They don't matter sure. more than impact. But intentions do matter, especially as people pursuing justice and some kind of spiritual and religious healing, because we want people to try, but when power and dominant identities employ the strategy of 
intentions over impact. It often yes. results in shutting down conversations and tone policing, which for those who don't know, tone policing is where what is being said is being missed by how it's being said or because mm. of how it's being said. Mm. And those conversations to me often spiral into this like chaotic energy mass of grace and mercy calls mm. when those things aren't actually even being extended in the conversation when a person is being defensive. And so I think that intention versus impact thing helps me identify when some defensiveness is arising in some conversations, though it's not always true. Yes. So I agree with that. And I would say it the kind of, I guess, red flags of, hey, there's defensiveness. But it is wanting to give explanation or justification for an action. So whether that's the backstory or the here were my intentions, rather than just listening and even reflecting back what the other person is saying. So you can just or what a group is saying, so that make sure you're actually listening to understand, not to figure out, oh, what's the next thing I'm gonna say so I feel better about what is being communicated about me. Um, I've seen this in some consulting work in organizations when they're trying to acknowledge the feedback they've been given, but they couch it in, here's the list of things we've already done that we think makes us good. And then mm -hmm. there's a phrase like, that being said, we have more work to do. It's interesting to me that in those moments, there's usually more clarity, even in what's articulated, about the things they have done or have they, they, that they want to mm -hmm. put some, like, we want some affirmation for this thing we've done. They're, the statements are less clear about what it is they need to do to repair. That to me is one of the like, that's the glaring red flag of uh, of defensiveness. Like, well, you've actually spent a lot of time thinking about the things that help create the defense of what you've done. And you have, no, you have very few thoughts that you're communicating about what you think needs to happen going forward. And most people in a situation where there needs to be amends made or repair needs to happen, most of us are more interested in the steps you're going to do toward that repair. We don't actually want the laundry list of what you've already done. I wouldn't even say well, because in my experience, those things, what's even that list reveals a lack of understanding, a lack of connection between what's what the situation requires. Yes, or is deeply colored by revisionist history from organizations and institutions. Because I know in the organization that I work for that we often call back on like 50 years ago, something that some people did back then to call on why we're like somehow better than other organizations around racial justice. But to me, all that is the defensive participation trophy that we give ourselves mm. every year mm. in racial justice that gives us a scapegoat of the past to not do things in the present when people are presently saying, hey, I'm suffering or I'm in pain somehow. Yeah, uh, that made me think of how, whether it's a on a personal level or in an uh in a group setting or organizational setting, being told something hard about ourselves or hearing a truth that we don't want to hear, we don't, we aren't actually aware of, right? A blind spots being exposed. It just, we quickly flip into hearing that through a lens of shame, through, through a lens of like, oh, we're all bad, right? There's not, it's hard to hold. Um, actually, some of my actions have been bad or have a bad impact. And mm -hmm. you have to talk about that. So um, I think that's where we get tripped up as well is just going into a shame spiral and then that totally blocks our ability to hear and then to protect from shame we're like well here's all this here's these defenses i'm throwing up because it just feels so bad i feel like i'm in this dark hole of despair if i even start engaging with what is being said well in that i have a kind of an adulting question like an interpersonal adulting question which is it it seems like defensiveness happens because we're shame spiraling, but I think that sometimes defensiveness happens or is perceived because we want to feel understood mm. or because people are being misunderstood. And so mm. I guess I'm wondering if, yeah, is there a distinction between seeking clarity and being defensive and what does that distinction look like? 
That is a great question. I think what I would say is that, yes, there is a distinction and that need that need to be understood is deep and it's profoundly human. And it's actually something that connects us to other people. I, what I would say is in moments of conflict or in moments where somebody's coming to you saying, or coming to me and saying, hey, you did this and it was damaging. We need to talk about that. Uh, if there's room to set aside for a while or to acknowledge like I have a need to be understood, I'm going to put that to the side for the moment in order to understand. I'm going to actually first try to understand and I'm going to then extend some trust and risk that in a process where I'm seeking to understand, there will also be room for that question to be turned on me and then I may have the opportunity to share the part of me that needs to be understood as well. When we jump first to the demand to be understood, that's the part where I think it breaks down or where it feels like, well, what even, even though that need is real and we feel it, what it says to the other person, it actually breaks trust. It's not a trust building experience. What it says is, oh, you're more concerned with being understood than understanding me in this moment. And there has to be, I mean, I just think of with my kids, there's no way in, you have to take turns in that process. So someone in the situation has to decide, I'm going to put aside my need to be understood, not because it's not important, not because it doesn't matter, but in order to first understand. And then, then I'm going to trust that there's room for me as well. And then I think on an organizational level has, has to play out is I would say uh, it's wherever the power, like wherever positional power or organizational power lies or is perceived, perceived to lie, that, in my opinion, that should be the party that's going to put aside the need to be understood. And again, mm -hmm. that need is real. We can pay attention to it. We can acknowledge it without letting it kind of steamroll or dominate an interaction where someone else or a group of people have taken the risk to say, this is a problem and we're, we're trying to help you be better by bringing this to your attention. Yes. And I, I think just personally, I'm pretty bad at that, that whole process, but I think that also the thing that you're saying about risk I think really matters in these conversations about defensiveness because I think that folks in power or folks who have done harm often fail to recognize that someone is taking a risk to bring a critique yep. or to bring a place where they've been harmed especially if they're talking about a personal vulnerability yes and I think that oftentimes a defensive posture hears that as an attack yes thus the word defense or defensiveness and so I think that because it's not recognized as a vulnerable risk that one is taking, but it's seen as a proactive attack on someone's personhood or the organizations that they really strongly associate with, it's almost impossible to get past those parts at some point because yeah. the fundamental understanding of what is happening in the conversation is missed from the onset. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about where defensiveness comes from, what that looks like, kind of where that originates for us. But we are talking about reclaiming our theology from white supremacy, and I'm not going to be a ridiculous person and be like, only white people are defensive. That is not true. Um, but there is a specific way that white supremacy culture mm. is very comfortable with or yes. creates defensiveness. And yeah. so can you talk a little bit about how defensiveness is a white value? How does that manifest in white communities differently than it does in other spaces? I can. And as I thought about this question, Brandy, the thing that I kept circling back around is that at its core, whiteness as a concept is a delusion, right? It's not a real category. It's a category that was created to consolidate and maintain power. Um, and so the way that plays out in white supremacy culture, in organizations, is that it becomes about maintaining a power structure that is centered around whiteness or whiteness being 
right in situation or having the right concepts or being inherently good or something like that. And mm -hmm. so that's that's how I would articulate the way it it plays out. And I think because because we uh and maybe white folk in particular don't have tools to even figure out how to divest from the delusion of whiteness, it's really hard not to just play into that defensive cycle because it feels so core to folks' mm -hmm. identities versus actually what's under underneath that delusion is the loss of family and story and your own histories that were just put in this mass in order to make you part of this powerful thing that perpetuates right inequality and all sorts of dark things in our country and our society. So I think there's particular what would I say? There's a particular almost power to the defensiveness in white supremacy culture mm -hmm. because there's so much at stake in upholding that delusion. Because it's like, well, if we start pulling apart that thread, some of the question is, if this is the story of what you all have been a part of, um, should you be in power? Like, sh is this how it should work? And that's a pretty scary proposition if you're in a position where you feel like, I don't know another way to exist in the world except to be in charge or to have a big stake in being the head of the table. Here's a little interlude just to say, I think this is where this conversation becomes really relevant. Because there's a way that defensiveness can just feel like an emotional tool that's being used to manipulate or to have people get their way, but there is this deeper manifestation that leads to violence. And as we have been reckoning with and continue to reckon with the attack on the US Capitol on January 6th, there are ways that the Christian narratives, the Jesus saves flags, the violence that happened there is a macro form of defensiveness where white men not knowing what it's like to not be in power, do whatever they can to maintain their sense of patriotism, dignity, and masculinity. And so I think we also have to recognize that Christian defensiveness is on a neutral thing because it isn't just about upholding white supremacy, it's about upholding masculinity and patriarchy. And in that way, what we saw at the Capitol was that if we need, if if Christian men feel like they are losing power and that they are the rightful heir to this world and this country that God has ordained to be Christian, then they should, in theory, do everything they can to protect that. Because the war is not just on America, the war is on God. And so you are not just defending yourself or your own power, you're defending the divine you're defending your families. And this plays into such a long history of hyper-masculine militaristic Christianity that will, by whatever means necessary, compromise for the sake of maintaining power and privilege. And so I just think it's important that we recognize that and that even as people in our lives continue to support people like Donald Trump or, or even emulate his leadership as we see people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz in kind of caricature ways trying to do, that they're really trying to pull back to a white, masculine, hyper-Christian world where they get to maintain power through ideology, and if not through ideology, then through violence. And so this is precisely what these folks mean when they say we're making America great again. It actually has very little to do with Jesus and very little to do with country and everything to do with the type of insecurity that comes when for the first time, maybe in people's lives, they are faced with the reality that the narrative they built their lives on is not a popular one, nor is it one that gives them the same kind of political or social power that it did before. And I feel concerned because our churches are pretty ripe for indoctrination and for defensiveness and for the kind of apologetics that would say that we need to fight the culture war that's trying to take away our freedoms and quote things like it's for freedom that Christ set us free without recognizing that 
it is our job to emulate the person of Jesus, not to be people who defend our own power at all costs. That would be unknown to the Jesus of the Bible. And so as Andrea and I continue this conversation, I just thought it was important that we talk a little bit about that because this is the, I don't know that we could have imagined even a few days before this conversation, the display of white male Christian defensiveness that would happen on the 6th. Yes. And I think that in that, when whiteness is critiqued, it's less neutral. And when white values are critiqued, it's less neutral because how white people are taught to see themselves as normal and good creates a worldview where then when someone says like, hey, maybe this value or maybe this thing that you're doing isn't right, good or ultimate, it is an attack on or it can feel like or be perceived as an attack on the foundation of reality and truth. Yes. And so it's not just like, oh, I did a bad thing or like I did a thing that was harmful. It's that, oh, the foundation of that thing that I did that was harmful is inherently problematic. Yeah. And there's no frame for white folks because of that normalization of whiteness and white culture to deal with that in any kind of mature way. Yeah. And that gets complicated then when you add in the theology piece, because what I think about a lot too is, but we have a, I was told from the time I was little that truth will set you free, that that's in the Bible. So shouldn't Mm -hmm. we be more committed to the truth than upholding delusion, right? Or wanting to be in that place? Um, Could we consider that on the other side of the fear, what it would mean for those, those delusions to crumble, that there's actually incredible freedom and wholeness for ourselves and for others? Isn't the story of Jesus that we can freely admit all the places where we fall Mm -hmm. short with complete abandon, knowing that we don't have to grovel in shame? That's the story I was told. And yet when it comes to this topic or how uh, whiteness and theology gets mixed, that's the place where I see people who claim the name of Jesus being the most defensive, right? The Mm -hmm. most. What was that? It was an article that came out recently or a, a poll that had done that showed that white evangelicals were across the spectrum of people in the U.S. the most resistant to the idea of uh, systemic racism being a thing, being even a thing that we can talk about as a baseline, it Mm -hmm. exists in the world. That's pretty telling about where there's been a breakdown in understanding of how how should our discipleship or what we believe about Jesus play out in this, this part of our lives and world. Yes. And the hard thing about defensiveness in that way is that it intersects with so many other I think defensiveness is probably one of the, like if there was a Venn diagram of all of the cultural values of white supremacy, I think defensiveness is the one that intersects with maybe the most of them, other than Mm. maybe hierarchy and individualism. Mm. But when I see defensiveness intersect with hierarchy, what that ends up creating is not only personal defensiveness, but collective defensiveness of institutions who aren't human or living or breathing. Mm. And it creates defense of structures and systems that may not actually serve us and creates those kind of defenses just in the name of maintaining hierarchy and power. And so as I think about even the resistance to Black Lives Matter as a movement, like we're literally saying, hey, it would be really great if police didn't kill Black people at disproportionate rates. Can we do something about that? Yeah. And there is so much defense of people. And what's wild for me is I grew up in rural, rural Southern Oregon, where people do not care for the police. Mm. Like people do not care for the police. They think that it's like an overextension of government power. But suddenly when it's about black folks in relationship to whiteness, there is this strong defensiveness of our first responders yeah. or of like back the blue and all these things where I'm like, oh, you don't actually, you never actually believed in that thing until it was about something else, until it was about yeah. something political, until it was about maintaining a structure that you're really comfortable and really safe in. Yeah. And I think that the that Christians do that 
so much to to defend the church at large. Like, don't bring up a critique about white supremacy or violence because you need to honor Christ's bride, the church, which we get all these like weird intersections with patriarchy into. But I see lots of the ways that white Christians specifically are taught to be defensive early mm. on. Mm. And then that extends past the walls of the church into the culture at large yeah. in ways that makes us, like you're saying in that statistic, averse to change or to even believing the truth about ourselves, like you said in the beginning. Yeah. I also think that there are a lot of memeable things about white culture and white people and white Christians. And one of the things that has felt most memeable about white men is the concept of but actually. Mm. And -hmm. I think that this like kind of but actually ideology is one that exists in white cultural general white culture generally, because there's some culture of debate, right? There's Mm. this kind of Greco-Roman entrenched platonic sense of arguing as a means of finding knowledge or Mm. arguing as a means of understanding or arguing as a means of winning. And because I think that's a heavily entrenched value and our education system reinforces defending our ideas through only logic or reasoning, that there's ways that this kind of but actually ideology, so like someone says something and then the person's first response is, but actually this thing, I don't think it's like, I think it's it's memeable and it's exhausting, but I think it actually tells us a lot about how white supremacy and defensiveness intersect because it isn't just about being a douche, which I think that... I think that statement kind of plays out that way. But I think Mm. it is to say that there's actually a deeper value around defensiveness that is manifesting Mm. and playing itself out in different ways. And so I just think that there's lots of ways that it that it plays out. And so I would love to shift a little bit to talking about theology and the church. Um, Let's do it. Because I think that it defensiveness permeates like every part of the church yeah but for folks who are newer to these conversations can you help point out how you see defensiveness manifesting in our midst as people who are trying to follow jesus i know you've mentioned some of those already but i'm curious what else you're thinking about yeah um the place where i've seen and experienced the most even if i draw back i shared um in our last conversation about growing up at a large white evangelical megachurch in arizona and how that how that what that was like at Christmas, but the rest of the year, one of the ways I saw that playing out was toxic leadership. Uh, People who had just patterns of really what I would call now verbally abusive behavior amongst other things towards quote subordinates in the organization, Uh, being protected, being deferred to, Uh, there was always an excuse made for them because, oh, they're such a great teacher or they're such a great this. Mm -hmm. And so, so much energy goes into protecting that person, never mind the the trail of destruction that was in in this person's wake. Yeah, we will die on the altar of gifted people. (laughs) Yes. Um, And that what I noticed, and I've seen this play, again, I've seen this repeated in church spaces, in non-church places, in really anywhere where there's hierarchical leadership structure is is the that's that's what the pattern is or that's what the model is um is also that folks at the top not all of whom are so toxic leaders but some who are allowed to maintain and perpetuate their toxicity also just it's been so long since anybody gave them feedback or since they received were open to receiving feedback that they didn't already want to hear that it just creates this like it's a it's a feedback it's a weird feedback loop that you just create for yourself that's like well i can just discount anything that i don't like or doesn't make sense or i'm in a position where people give me all kinds of feedback and i trust myself to sift through that and i just decide that 99 percent of it is not helpful like i had an interaction with a pastor in the last year where 
um, I was giving them some feedback about a way they could be more inclusive in something they did in a service. And their response was, well, I can't please everyone. Like, I just can't please everyone. I've learned that over 20 something years of ministry. I can't please everyone. Okay. Um, I wasn't asking you to please everyone. I was asking you to be more inclusive towards this particular population and who that would welcome into your service or who who feels by what you said felt un incredibly unwelcome in the room, right? So that kind of dynamic. Um, I think the, uh, feels like, you know, every couple of months there's some giant scandal that erupts over the hiding of abuse of com some kind, mm. right? Since Me Too and Church Too, it's been mostly sexual abuse. Um, that is a form, whatever is that circle the wagons, defend, keep it internal. That's its own weird kind of defensiveness playing out. Um, and then, you know, in this moment or in the last few years, I think more, more folks are, are noticing the way that there is a, and you've already named this, but the resist, the, the defensiveness towards any kind of political correction or seeing the way bad theology plays out politically, plays out in the world in really practical ways. The idea, you know, when you said Black Lives Matter, the idea that folks who claim the name of Jesus are resistant to the idea that like, do you want your taxpayer dollars going to state sanctioned executions of black folk? Like, cause that's what's happening, right? You claim fiscal conservatism. Here's what some of your money is being used for. Are you okay with that? Right. But there, you can't have that conversation or that's, that's a, yep. that's, that's dead on arrival in terms of the yes. conversation. Those are three yes. things that I would name. We could talk about a ton more, but those are places where I see it. It's that on repeat over and over and over again. Yes. And I think that what feels challenging is that for a lot of white folks, there isn't a sense of collective identity outside of the institutions that white people hmm. are a part of. Hmm. So I think about like why I watch like white men be so weird about sports. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, because there's like actually places where a lot of white folks, because of rugged individualism, do not have cultural identity in the same way that communities of color, queer communities, communities of other huh. marginalized identities experience that. And so when there is group identity, particularly in a church where there's power and transformation and you feel like really committed to it, not just because of a group identity, but because of what that group identity has done for you. Like hmm. when you literally think that a community could, has been a part of saving or changing your life or connecting you to the divine. I think it makes sense that people would be defensive of those things because it is the foundation of so much of who they are. And it is this experience that white people get to have of collective identity hmm. that goes beyond like the school that you go to or the Greek organization you're a part of or whatever. And so I think that there's something in that that hmm. feels true of church in a way that allows for that kind of abuse that you're talking about. Yeah. And when that happens, because we are sent or we are, because we are set to assume the best of our leaders because they've created those transformational spaces for us, it makes sense that our impulse would be to defend those folks, even when we don't have any data to back up that that, that would be the case. Yes. Or our only data that we consider good is our personal experiences of good, yes. not the ways that those leaders could be harmful in some way. Right. Right. Or to even acknowledge that it's possible you have had a good in your perception, in your experience, experience of that person. That doesn't mean they're all bad. That doesn't mean they're all good. It just means that's been your experience. And so to not be able to listen to somebody else has a very different experience of that. Like, I think of even just like, any kind of abusive situation, like there's people who aren't abused by that person because the abuser selects the, the people they want to abuse, right? Like that's just, I mean, we can, we can see that play out in other situations, but I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense that in the, in the, I think in the loss and of assuming of an identity or being the, if your inheritance is an identity built on really illusions and this kind of frack, weird coalition of people that, you know, 200, 300 years ago wouldn't have all be, been seen as the same 
group of people, then that sense of loyalty to whatever has um, reinforced a sense of family for you, a sense of place, a, pl a sense of belonging, like, yes, it is very human that the instinct would be to protect that. Yeah, I think that word loyalty feels really important in conversations about defensiveness, hmm. of, especially of others. Hmm. And I think I've, I experience this in my own organization really often because we have tried at least sometimes over the years to do kind of whatever would be quote unquote the right thing or the slightly more progressive thing or the what I will call maybe at best just left of center sometimes thing. Hmm. But what I think happens is that white people and uh, East Asian folks who come from privilege often see the organization as being the most progressive thing or the most liberating thing that exists. Hmm. And so often come to the defense of the organization being like, well, we did this, we did this, we did this, while black black and brown folks and native folks are like, bruh, we barely get paid here. Like, mm -hmm. you make four times as much as we do because you can fundraise through our fundraising models that are inherently racist. And so you experience this, the cost of this organization, the activity of this organization, the leadership of this organization, as this shining star up in the sky that's actually causing deep, deep harm in my life. And you can't see past your own experience to actually recognize the thing that the critique that we're bringing could be valid because it's not your personal experience. Yes, yes. And again, then taking it back to theology or to our our, our beliefs about God, about other people, what I see in scripture over again is a story of like, if somebody comes to you and that's the, what the dynamic you just described is what is happening, then the response of people who follow Jesus should be, right, uh, it's not just like owning that and apologizing for it. It's what can we do to fix this? What is the active that can be, what is the active steps we can take to repair that? And again, to not miss out on like, and that repair is going to like, the transformation of those reparative steps are for everyone. Like, again, there's like good things on the other side of that. On the uh, If we could step into that unknown space of what would it mean to repair? Yes. And I think those theological questions become really complicated because of how we see God and how we're taught to see God in our early years following Jesus and the ways that certain scriptures are used in ways that I think are um, wrong. Mm. I, I don't know. I think they're straight up wrong. Mm. Um, I was doing some research because I always do some like pretty conservative end research on these topics before I come onto these just to kind of see like what's yeah. the lay of the land out there in evangelicalism because I don't really operate in that space anymore, though I have a lot of life experience. And I found this article that was like 15 ways or 15 verses to help you defend your faith or to talk about defending your faith. Yeah. And one of them that I've heard a lot growing up is, is in Psalm 94. And it says something to the effect of like, who will rise up against the wicked? Who will take a stand against evildoers? And I'm like, that Psalm is written by David about himself. Mm. Like this actually mm. isn't about defending God. Mm. But I think what happens is when we take ideologies like that and we couple them with this like persistent new testament idea that we need to be against false teachers or give a defense for our faith yeah. that it foundations the faith like literally we will say this is the foundation of our faith is to be able to defend why we are right yeah and so i think if that is the foundation of a lot of white evangelical thought or praxis is like a pursuit of absolute truth that can't be broken through by the arrows of the enemy in the culture, like if it's if it's that kind of thing, then it makes sense that our defensive posture would extend past our theology and past our use of scripture and into our relationships. 
Yes. Yeah. Because you said there was something you said earlier about how, you know, even our early formation in these faith spaces is around a, maybe apologetics, right? Defending your faith. It's about being taught to submit to authority and to then in that is an implicit invitation to see authority as good or to at least mistrust you mistrust yourself if you're getting the inkling that like something about this kind of leadership is not good. like no 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 i, I right like I, but i want to be a, i want to be a good follower i want to submit and to see there's this again funk that is drawn out of scripture and then misapplied about the chosenness of god's leaders and uh, it even comes, okay, so one of my guilty view viewing pleasures is the crown. So I love a colonizer narrative, I guess, like British royal family. So intriguing. But one of the themes that comes out in this in this last season is around this sense of like, actually it comes out through the whole thing. The idea that the British monarchy functions still from a place of like divine right of monarchy. The idea that God instituted this thing and that's why we have power and authority. Well, that the through line between power and authority, whether it's in political spaces, the nonsense around f trying to find a biblical analogy for 45 and who he must be, right? Like, oh, he's he's like this king or like this. I'm like, no, no, right? But like, there's this deep impulse to assign chosenness or God's favored status to political leaders or to leadership in the church that then immediately, it, it, it's not even, it's like a, I would call it pre, it's like a preemptive baked in defensiveness that says you can't, you can't come at us with any kind of critique because you're coming at God with that critique if yes. that's, if that's what yes. is being proposed. Well, absolutely. And I think the way that that manifests is in our conversations, our early conversations when we're in faith about heaven and hell and guilt and shame. And this idea that we are inherently bad. And if we're inherently hmm. bad, then there's no reason to defend like, like God is, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know how to say this well, because I think if in our conversations about heaven and hell and salvation are rooted in guilt and in shame as a means to that salvation, and that's the kind of culture that we create, I think that because we are taught to assume our inherent wrongness, our worldliness, our fleshliness, and then we are taught this extreme counterexample of Jesus that makes us free and salvific and redeemed and glorified that then critique against us actually feels like something that isn't correct unless mm. it's coming from our leaders mm. or coming from God because mm. those fears and guilt and shame are brought from our leaders and by extension in our minds maybe from God mm. to us and so even in things that we would not I think we're taught to be defensive about lots of things but I think that the things that we choose to defend are shaped by a guilt and shame culture that's kind of built up theologically in our midst. I think one of the ways that I see this defensiveness playing out in the church too is in the idea of the word biblical. Mm. So like what is biblical and what is not mm. biblical. And that we can say like, well, because what I think is biblical, everything else needs to be eliminated or destroyed or my way needs to be defended and everything else needs to be eliminated. But the irony is that in conversations about defensiveness, about biblical things, we use what I, I don't even use the word biblical that often, but I will use it for the sake of argument. Okay that we use unbiblical means to try to come to biblical ends. And so we use a defensive posture. We hmm. don't listen. We don't empathize. Yeah. We don't have compassion. We don't extend mercy or grace while asking other people to extend mercy and grace and compassion to us for the thing that we did that was wrong instead of doing what you said earlier, which is finding actionables to actually rectify the thing yeah. that we did yeah. and not just try to pacify ourselves in our own, our own emotional world that's being impacted by the harm that we've caused. Yeah. And what that, what 
what it requires to practice something different or to begin to take steps out of that. It's first to recognize it, but then it's to start becoming more comfortable with questions and things that don't have clear answers, right? Or a clear place to put your stake down in like, well, this is true, or this is right, or this is wrong. And that's deeply, that is threatening, right? To a, to a system that's about um, formula and answers fundamentally. And that makes sense to me, right? I think most people, uh, or I, I would imagine part of the, when you're in a deconstruction process, like that's part of the disorienting bit of it is like, well, all of these things were very clear before and now they seem less clear and that's discombobulating like in terms yes. of an internal experience. Um, but I'm like, well, but I see discombobulated people causing less harm than deeply defensive people who feel the need um, to protect whatever that means, protect their version of what is true or right or ultimately good yeah and it's just straight up not a good look like <laughs> most of no kind of makes you look like an ass like at the end of the day <laughs> that's just yeah and even you know if we're going to bring back to an example or look at um i take a lot of comfort in the moments where jesus doesn't say anything or chooses not to engage or doesn't have like just does not have a defensive posture about something when he's being questioned right or like when people are trying to figure him out um, like, well, that's interesting that Jesus doesn't feel the need to rely on that as a means of power or as a means of asserting some sort of authority. When I think that that's a way that Jesus models living outside of binary ideologies of like, mm -hmm. like what you're saying, like problem, solution, question, answer. It seems like Jesus is actually more like question, another question, yeah. another question, or yeah. like question process, yeah. another parable, another question. And so it, it yeah. instead of being defensive, actually says, if I were to listen and let this sit in my, we'll use the word heart, like sit in my heart for a while, how might that change mm. how I experience it? Mm. Like if I were to, because right, defensiveness, I think there's two ways that it plays out that I see. One is immediate and one is calculated. Mm. So there's like the immediate, like emotional response that we have, or there's the calculated, how do I pacify the critique that's being brought against me? And I think that one feels more institutional. <sighs> yeah. And I see Jesus being really non-defensive in general. Like I think about, I've been thinking a lot about the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, right? Where Jesus in Mark goes to a Gentile area, encounters a, what we'll call a foreign woman yeah. who is asking Jesus to, to, I believe he's healing her daughter who has a demon. And he, she asks him for this healing and he's like, no. And he calls her a dog. Mm. And the amount of theological gymnastics that we do to make Jesus like so perfect and so great as to not make a, misstep is yeah. exhausting but she is the only person in any of the scriptures to complete a parable of jesus or to yes. complete a teaching or to add to a teaching of jesus and she says like well yeah but don't even the dogs eat the crumbs mm. from the table like jesus you have enough for me too yeah and jesus then commends her for that for her faith and then does the thing that she asks and yeah. i think that jesus could have taken a posture that looks a lot like our churches it's like well i didn't mean it that way yeah or like oh you're being too sensitive or like, haven't I done enough for you all already? Like, he could call on all of those things, but instead mm. he says, like, oh, shit, you're right. Mm. Like, yeah, there is enough. And, like, yeah, that is a racial slur. Like, yeah, I, yeah, okay. And so I think if even the Lord incarnate can experience correction from the most marginalized yes. person, then we should be able to hear and set ourselves up to hear critique, to hear feedback, to hear truth about ourselves. Yeah because Jesus could hear truth about himself. Yeah, and that's why I love that reading, right? And that interpretation, because similarly, it counters uh, other versions of that I've heard that do require a lot of 
interesting, like, it's just some interesting things that have to happen to make that make sense. Well, really, this was just this big object lesson for the disciples. And he was saying that because that's what they thought. And then, like, where does that come from, right? On a just most obvious level, could it be that Jesus received correction? And that's such a beautiful and healing, that's such a healing picture. Yes. And it makes sense to me because a lot of what Jesus critiques the religious leaders for in his own time and in the Gospels is their defensiveness of their religious system at the expense of people's lived experiences and lives. Mm, mm. And so if if we find ourselves defending institutions or our own intentions over the impact that they're having on people's lives, I think we actually find ourselves sitting in the position in the scriptures where we are given really, really critical woes by Jesus for how our religiosity is impacting the mm. marginalized and our sense of self and our distortion of who God is in the world. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about some of the kind of culture of what this looks like, because I think there's some specific ways that defensiveness, and then I think there's ways that it is justified mm. in its theology. Some of the ones that I think of are are excessive uses of calls for grace and mercy, hmm. uh, or for time, hmm. or to ask the marginalized or the person who's been harmed for forgiveness before there is any kind of change or repentance. Yes. Uh, in my organization, there's been a lot of places where instead of doing something about the thing that's been done, they hold a lot of what we call listening posts mm. or like times to listen. But that listening actually never does anything. It just mm. pacifies the defensive posture and it pacifies. It, it gives another defensive tool yeah. or thing to call back to. Where it's like, well, we did all these listening posts. And I'm like, yeah, but if nothing's changed systemically, then your listening actually only served you by giving you more to defend yourself with. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if there there are phrases or things that you see coming up regularly, like, we're trying, can't you be grateful? Are there things that come to mind for you at all in that? Yeah, it's for me, it's not so much phrases. I, I you know, everything you pointed out, I can say like, yes, I've seen that. I've seen that play out. I've heard that. Um, I think the, the clues I look for that are the repeated, like, oh, yeah, this is where it's playing out, is that... Um, when there's no change, to, there's no actual change to power struck to a power structure, or there's no movement towards um, more collaborative sharing of power, how that plays out, and there's no financial cost because I think money and power are so tied together. Mm -hmm. So that's where I I see the overlap again because now I'm bridging into I've, I've been in evangelical spaces and now I'm bridging also into more corporate spaces and that's the interesting tie between the two neither one of those places want to actually do the work to give up money and power in some way right mm -hmm. so in any of those settings and when I say give up give up money right right there's yeah there'd be ways to you know, when you talk about a fundraising structure, changing that so it's more equitable. Um, but it would also be just putting money into the repair. You know, most companies, that's why they hire consultants or they hire people to help them do that because they don't have the tools to do it. But that costs money. So are you mm -hmm. going to put that in your budget, in your line item that here's the investment we're making in learning how we can repair and then here's the tangible steps we're making. So those are the things for me that I look for. Like, is there actual beyond talk? What are the examples of power being shared? And I think the healing aspect of how that could play out in hierarchical structures is people at the bottom of the structure actually have power. They don't just have an ear for what they're talking mm -hmm. about or asking for. They have a, um, some autonomy and agency in what what moving forward could look like in a different way. Yes, um, That would be a practical example of... I guess I shifted this and started talking about uh, ways that 
a, a less defensive culture would play out. And then also, like, are we... Oh, I just think hoarding power and hoarding money go hand in hand because they're connected. And so that's Absolutely. what I that's what I look for. And I think the examples are rare of places where that's being broken down or um, those systems are being dismantled. That to me, it would be a sign that um, defensiveness is crumbling in some way. Yes, which I think what you're describing in there, too, is that oftentimes organizations or people make cosmetic changes, but yeah, not power changes. Yes. And so... I might post on an individual level, I might post all the right stuff on my social media during Pride Month, but be homophobic as hell in my day to day life because I'm not analyzing or hearing from people. Yeah. I might make cosmetic changes to my, or like I see a lot of companies right now, it feels to me like the, when Netflix put up a Black Lives Matter banner, I'm like, okay, that's a cosmetic change, yeah. but like, where are the systemic changes that are following that? Right. And so, again, it, we build defenses to then call on those defenses, those defenses later. And that kind of that kind of cosmetic change to me is one of the most nefarious ways that Christians participate in defensiveness and oppression mm. because we would rather not adjust power yeah. and do like a diversity hire or a restructuring, but paint it as a systemic change yeah. instead of just like white organization, but with blackface or brownface on it, which yeah. is what I see a lot in Christian organizations. Yeah. And I think that's been particularly painful for me during COVID, where there's this opportunity for organizations like my own to slow down and to actually do something about who we are and to become people who are better news and to do what you're saying and to take that those power structures and the intersection of power and money and to pursue healing and repentance. But instead, I've seen a lot of organizations pummel a bunch of money or like pump a bunch of money into evangelistic activities or missional activities or things like that that reflect that not only are we not hearing what's happening loudly outside of us, yeah, but that we see ourselves as outside of it because our response doesn't reflect that we understand what's happening and that we would rather defend that by making a diversity higher than by actually yes. reallocating power and money and control. Yes. I, I love what you're saying about that, that then, and that, 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 that in and of itself is a, def that is the evidence of defensiveness, right? Like mm -hmm. that, that, um, I I love that the word um, apocalyptic means unveiling, right? It's something being revealed. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up again in kind of charismatic circles where I was very afraid of being left behind and all of the right all of the things we talk about when we read Revelation or talk about the apocalypse. Like, but to think to, to learn like, oh, at its root, the word is about unveiling. So what's being revealed? And what you're what you're describing is that in this moment, here's what's being revealed. It's mm -hmm. what's being revealed is the the depth of the defensive layers that are in place. Um, so much so that even our, like, even the efforts of, you know, whether it's virtue signaling or, uh, you know, making the diversity higher, like, that needs to be called out as a defensive thing. But then we're met with defensiveness when we talk about those things yes. because it's so, again, there's just, there's so much at stake for the folks with, with power. Well, yeah. And in that way, I think of defensiveness, like in, like a castle metaphor, like mm. you have country boundaries and then you have a moat and then you have a gate or a drawbridge and then you have a gate and then you have archers and you have knights and then you have internal structures and you, so defensiveness isn't a single thing yeah. it's a collection of things and so i think for christians we have this defensive castle that we have that yeah starts with our theology and how we view god as one who needs to be defended or and then we see ourselves as those who need to defend and then we give power to people to defend hmm. then we 
create portraits of ourselves that are better than they are that then cannot hear feedback and then we create actual systems and structures that can't change based on feedback because the defensive structures already exist and so yeah i think it is not just as, as simple as oh we're defensive because we feel defensive or we're defensive in this one way because we've been critiqued but it's that we actually put a lot of effort time mm. energy and resources into defending and we do this legally yeah like we create legal defenses theological defenses cultural social and communal defenses to being more like jesus mm. which to me feels for lack of better terms antichrist mm. if the foundation of what jesus is doing is inviting people to repentance and change for the good of the world and those around them. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So, so in that, I'd love for us just to talk briefly about a couple more things, but one is just what are the consequences of defensiveness for people's sense of self of Mm -hmm. the God and of others? Cause I think that that, that kind of personal piece does feel real. If the personal does create the collective culture that we have now. Yeah. Well, even what you just said made me think that, well, one of the consequences of defensiveness is it's actually very isolating, even when it's happening in a collective way, right? Like there's this way that uh, defensiveness in all of its form blocks actual relationship from happening because you can't you can't you can't be a mutual relationship if your posture is constantly self-protective right or trying to protect the institution so that plays out between individuals and groups of people but profound i mean that's that's the thing that came to mind is just like oh defensiveness blocks relationship and leaves us really isolated and that is very sad and that you know plays into our sense of self our sense of god our sense of community because then if we're feeling that way or we're part of a group that's feeling that way, then we have to kind of double down on those defensive in order to to not feel so isolated because at least we have this other group that we're in isolation with. Like, that's, that's... But what we're missing out on is, again, this is what I keep coming back to because it's what I make... I'll just use examples of what I'm experiencing in marriage counseling. When, when I'm able to lower that defense and be vulnerable and then express, like listen to what my partner needs and see what I can offer and then be offered that support in return out of what I need, right? And where we're, we're working on repair. Mm-hmm. I would rather put my energy towards that. Like, because that's going to take energy too. Like w- when you talked about all of the layers of energy that are taken to, to bolster a sense of defensiveness and all the money and resources we put towards that. Well, we can divert those resources to other things that would actually bring healing and bring less isolation and more more of the relationships that we're asking for that we really want to see happen. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it will cost those in power um, to do that. And again, well, we have a model in Jesus of, of doing that, right? And I think that's, uh, that's, that's where I feel hope. Because I'm like, yes, there's a deep cost to people, um, to those of us perpetuating those things. And even the small taste that I'm having in my like partnership with Ben over what it looks like to look like to 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 let the defensiveness um to unlearn those patterns it's really good like it's the kind of good that makes me say it's worth all of that work um and that is that's been significant in my life so what I'm what I what I think I'm kind of uh the lens I'm applying then on groups of people organizations I think I believe that that is possible in those spaces as well Mm mm-hmm Well, I think that one of the things that I hear you saying and that I'm thinking about as I consider that like helps us be less isolated component is that it actually like in what what you're talking what you're and in what you're saying about marriage is that we actually get to experience acceptance and being fully ourselves because I think that there's something about being accepted when you're doing right all the time and there's Mm. something very different Hmm. 
about knowing that you're loved and cared for and chosen when you fuck up. Yeah. Like, I think that there's, like, a big difference in the kind of depth of intimacy and love that we feel Yeah. when we bring our full selves mess up and then are still cared for and received on the other side of that. Yeah. And I think it feels a little heartbreaking to me because I think that as I even think about how I hear students when they're coming into their first couple of years of college praying, it's like, God, I'm so unworthy. Like, I can't Mm -hmm. believe you love someone who's as, like, jacked up as I am, like, Thank you for your grace and mercy that you just don't like kill me. And it feels like a really sad defensive posture that says like, I have to tell God how terrible I am to defend why God should like forgive Mm. and love Mm. me or like, Mm. I don't know. I don't even know exactly where, how it all plays out, but I can just, I sense that there's some way that the ways that we're taught about God and how God sees us actually kind of embraces this defensive posture by telling us that we're terrible all the time. Mm. And so I think there's both ends of that spectrum. There's the like kind where we can't receive any feedback or there's where we already assume the very worst about ourselves totally. and then defend the worst about ourselves yeah. so that we can be loved, yeah. which I think if we do anything with like attachment theory can tell us lots of things about our relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, um, there's a learning to be done. This is what I'm discovering around uh, just non-judgmental observation of myself and even my defensive responses. Mm. And I think what's been so healing is having our therapist be the one to say, where does that sense of self judgment come from? And I'm like, Oh, Mm. it's in the spaces I was formed. Right. And so to actually have, I think what is beautiful, what has been beautiful for me in this moment is it is a, this person is not a Christian, right? This, and that is the voice that God is using in my life to help me learn how to, um, without judgment, notice and observe and say, well, is there an invitation to something different? And what I am experiencing in that is more of a sense of love and acceptance, yes, from God and also from my partner. And so, like you're saying, if that can be, if that could be experienced on like a compounding level in other relationships or between groups of people, that's, we all have a profound need for acceptance, right? And to have that need yes. met. And defensiveness will block that every time. Yes. And it feels so freaking brutal because i think that the tie between the assumption of white normalcy and dominance of the need and the need to be theologically right makes it so that we theologically cannot make space to accept people or accept ourselves Mm. and if defensiveness or non-defensive postures create acceptance and healing then our defensive postures inherently create the opposite and i think the theology piece that feels challenging for me and all of that is that it, it theologizes owning the harm that we cause and listening as being something that needs to be theologically worked through first instead mm. of just going like, hey, even if I don't theologically share a position on a thing, if I cause harm, I should own that. Yes. But because there are these like theological defenses, we can't even do that. Yeah. And so I think about a lot this a lot in the ways that people try to justify their homophobia and transphobia in their church doctrines or practices or in their organizational doctrines and practices by by like owning harm a little bit but thinking that like listening and owning harm is somehow like diverting from their own values or something which I'm like yeah probably should but that the systems that we actually set up don't allow us to listen or engage even if we think that we are because the first mm-hmm. lens that we're always bringing it through is a theologically defensive one That creates exclusion in really, really painful and non-neutral ways that are bearing the fruit of 
death and violence in the lives of marginalized communities, particularly queer folks and folks mm. of color. Mm. Yeah. So that sounds pretty terrible. And we've talked a little bit about, uh, we've talked a little bit about some of the other ways or what this looks like differently. You've talked a little bit about that through therapy and through reframing, but are there other ways? What would it look like to reclaim our theology from defensiveness and to mm. live differently? Mm. Um, one of the things I think of that we've talked about already is just the story of John the Baptizer hmm. who shows up and there's this preamble in Luke where it's saying, well, it's from Isaiah, it's in Luke, but from Isaiah yeah. saying that to prepare the way for, that, that the Lord needs the way prepared yeah. that in which feels already strange that God would need a way prepared and wouldn't prepare that way God's self, but that God doesn't actually force God's self onto people, but actually invites people into change that makes them ready when God shows up, hmm. which I think is a lot of the reconstruction and deconstruction process is, clearing the way of the nonsense and bullshit in our lives and in our theologies that keep us from experiencing God. Yeah. But that John is the person who shows up to prepare the way. And the way that he does that is by calling out a group of people in really critical ways. He mm. calls them a nest of snakes. He <laughs> says their religion is not enough to defend them, nor should that be the thing that they lean onto, that God could make rocks if God wanted followers and that they're not holding up to it. And in a position where a group of people should by all means be very defensive. Yeah. Like should be subtweeting John, should be all up in defense about it. Hmm. The question that they ask from three very different groups of people is what then should we do? Hmm. And then they hear those responses and it says that the community is changed. Yeah. And so to me that feels like one example is just is to follow the model of the people who hear John the Baptizer. To hear and go, ooh, I feel something at yeah. like a 10. Yeah. And maybe it is a 10, but how do I manage my own emotional response to actually be able to hear the thing that's happening and change if that's what's required of me? Yeah. And I think in that, this would be a place where, you know, you talked earlier about sometimes the way a defensiveness manifests is, oh, we just need more time. Or we ask for patience. or yeah. But I think it does, this is a place where actually asking for time could be a good and helpful thing in that space to manage ourselves, right? Or to be like, mm -hmm. if I'm in a position where I'm getting feedback that is really hard to hear and I feel just my response, uh, you might not feel equipped in that moment to respond well. And actually owning that, owning that, not owning like, or, or using the time in a weird way to be like, I don't want to do anything, but I'm just going to ask for time. But actually saying, there's something vulnerable about saying, I don't feel equipped to respond well, and I really want to hear you. I really want to understand. Could I have some time to sit with this, right? Or, yes. And then to take some space to explore what is underneath that defensiveness for you and try to, and do it in community. Do that with other people who know you well and can help be a helpful, maybe counterpoint to your own unhelpful filters. Like this is not a, you don't have to do this in isolation. That's not the invitation. It's yes. how, how to pay attention, to notice what's happening, to take space to explore that and then to be able to come back in so that you're able to hear what would be the reparative steps what would be a tangible action yes. right i love that john the baptist example some of it is like uh he's like share your stuff you've got too much give it away right like that even some of what heals that community is around um possession and power and money right that's all all yes. connected so but to become to to practice in small ways, what it become, what it's like to hear other people's feedback or the way our actions um, harm and to begin receiving those from a place of, of seeking to understand first. And then yes. in that to trust that in a healthy exchange, in a healthy relationship, whether that's between two people or between groups of people, there is also 
I think it's kind of that all or nothing mentality or that, um, that idea that it's like things are a zero sum game, right? So if I, if I put in effort just to listen and understand, there won't be room for me. I won't be understood. Something about what mm-hmm. I need is going to be lost. Like, no, I think in practice, what you actually need will be found, but you'll have to drop that demand. Yes. And I've been practicing that in my own life, just saying like, oh, I feel a defensive posture in me, naming that, going like, hey, I can tell I'm responding defensively right now. Not really sure why. Yeah. Want to put that into the conversation and let you know I'm not responding like I want to be responding. And that I can't get past these things right now. So I either need to come back to this or like take a walk around the block or yeah. like have a moment to figure out where this is coming from yeah. in me and to pay attention to that. Because I think that sometimes we don't do that mm-hmm. and we misjudge the gravity of conversations and i know that i do this yeah i've done too. where someone is like hey can you just put your dishes away next time and i'm like i feel this at an eight mm. because i've tried so hard in other things but it's like yeah. really it's like a two it's like a thing that's being mentioned because yeah. it needs to change because it's silly but i think that there's ways that things become bigger than they need to be when we don't manage the gravity to which we experience defensiveness and manage that at the level that it actually is. And I know that we can't always do that. Like I always say that if you're experiencing defensiveness at a 10, but something like you can tell in your mind is actually like a two or a three, then I'm not asking you to come down to a two or three. I'm asking you to come down to like a five or a six because doing a two and a 10 is going to be less severe than doing a two and a five. Yes. And so what I hear you say is like, even within, in a, it's in embracing that learning process, it's like, oh, we're actually rejecting perfectionism, right? We're we're rejecting Mm -hmm. all these other tangled things that you've been talking Mm -hmm. about again throughout this series that are all interconnected. And so, yeah, let's learn and not, uh, what am I trying to say? Like not then add, like add in those unhelpful or cling to those other unhelpful pieces as we're trying to like not be defensive because that feels like self-defeating as well and really not... Yes. Yeah, that's not helpful. Well, and in that way, I think that defensiveness is often reactive or responsive. Yeah. And when we hear feedback in a way that it doesn't, that isn't from a reactive or a, def- or a responsive space, it can be helpful. And so one of the things that I've been practicing over the last probably eight years is proactively asking for feedback mm. regularly mm-hmm. in my work and in my relationships, mm-hmm. asking like, I can tell I'm a little off. Can you tell me some things about myself that I may not be seeing right now? Yeah. Like, can you, like for with my students, when I had student leaders being like, I know that these are like the five attributes that we use of like what a good leader is. Which one of these do I most need to grow in? And doing that publicly yeah. and having to manage my defensiveness and feel that and to proactively yeah. ask for feedback. Yeah. Because I think a lot of us, because of defensiveness, are positioned to do the other thing. Yes. Which I would just call shit talking and not owning our stuff, which is where we do something, someone gives us feedback, and then we run to all of our friends outside yes. of it yeah. to get positive reinforcement about why we're great and why that other person is wrong. Yes. And I think if we don't have a counterbalance of hearing the truth about ourselves and receiving grace and like compassion from people who care about us, we just become defensive little monsters who can't hear anything about ourselves because we just reinforce our own sense of self through communities that we know will tell us what we want to hear. Yes. And that's not helpful and is what most pastoral leadership models often look like. Yes. And again, my experience is that that leaves um, a lot of destruction. There's a high, high cost to that. I think this is one of the harder attributes to unlearn because it is it is less cerebral than mm. like, how do I unlearn paternalism? Mm. It's a thing that is a response that we've trained in ourselves that I think neurologically yeah. has to shift. Yep. 
and that that takes a lot of time. And so I just yeah. want to say to folks, like, as you notice defensiveness in yourself, there is so much power in naming that, yes. bringing that to prayer, bringing that to therapy and engaging with that and engaging that with people in your relationships. Because the thing that we are seeking, like Andrea said several times, is acceptance, um, both self-acceptance, knowing our acceptance from God and acceptance from others as we mess up by actually being people who own our stuff and not just trying to build up walls that keep us from seeing ourselves and our relationships more clearly. Yeah. So Andrea, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, you've brought so much depth and consideration to a topic that I think a lot of us experience, but not a lot of us can name very well. Mm. And so I would love to have you tell folks, where can people find you? Is there anything that you want to plug right now? What's up? Yeah, you can uh, you can find me on the interwebs on Instagram uh, under my business, Full Palette Coaching. Uh, you can also find my website, fullpalettecoaching.com. And then I thought about, you know, I've already had a round of plugging that. I actually want to plug um, the women that made that website possible. So Tracy G and Kadrian Hinton were, Tracy designed the website. Um, Kadrian did the graphic design for my logo. Um, check them out. They are on the internets as well on Instagram. They're yes. both super talented. Love to promote them. And then the other thing I wanted to plug is actually a book I read this year that was really, has been really helpful in my, just my learning and thinking about money and power. So that's a book called Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva. He writes, uh, he's from the foundation world. So he comes from philanthropy, um, but also has this really interesting identity. He grew up in evangelical spaces. He's gone through his own kind of deconstruction, reconstructing process. Um, he's a Lumbee Indian from North Carolina. Like, so just complexity of identity and experience. Mm -hmm. So the book is written for folks in the philanthropy, philanthropic foundation world, but I read it and uh, just, there were so many overlaps, I think, into Christian space or how we, if, how follow of Jesus want to think about our money and using wealth and power as a uh, means of healing rather than means of self-protection, defensiveness, and hoarding. So highly recommend uh, that book is uh, still, I think, changing my thinking and my practices. Yes, and I have been shaped by that in how you experience money, are generous, and invite folks to life that is free of debt and, mm. yeah, through redistribution. Like, mm. you actually live your values, which is great. And I will also second your shout out to Tracy and Kadrian. Kadrian designed the logo for Reclaiming My Theology and one of the pages of our Advent book. And Tracy does all kinds of amazing work, but really, yes. I'm living for her Friday TikToks. So, <laughs> me too. Thank you, Tracy. You're amazing. Yes. Thank you, Tracy, and thank you, Andrea, again for being here. Thanks, on. Brandy. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. I'm so grateful to get to have and do this journey with you all and to be a fellow learner along the way. If you like what you hear, feel free to join us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash brandynico. We're launching this next week our Patreon exclusive podcast feed starting with White Supremacy and the Enneagram. And we have some really dope things coming moving forward. Um, yeah, don't forget about the Lent book. Check that out on Monday. And until then, let's just try to do a little bit better together. <laughs>